Yeah, I think um, the Dutch and the Swedish are two of the countries that don't have subtitles on any television. Or, sorry, that do have subtitles on television and don't dub anything. Ah, okay. So, um, basically, we learn English through Friends, um, the television series. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and I think that's why the, the Swedes and the Dutch have very good English, but it's not British English. No. So... I always find that actually, like, speaking of when, when I used to go to Italy quite a lot, it was always, it blew my mind that everything was dubbed. Like, I don't know why I assumed yeah. otherwise, but it just the, the, that whole kind of cottage industry is fascinating yeah. to me. Like, is well, especially in, in Italy, because they dub their own stuff. Ex- absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That is weird, you know. But I wonder, like, for stuff like, like Friends, for an example, like, is there a voice actor that does Jennifer Aniston? And then yes, for all the yes, movies, yes, then she will actually, be the same there person. There actually is. There are like people who take on specific specific actors. That's amazing. And yeah, uh, and there, I think there have even been like fights between like the the person, like the real person not liking the voice and things like that. And there's like <laughs> fallouts because like. You know, somebody maybe said something racist and then, you know, you have to, like, <laughs> fire your voice and, yeah. The something. Italian Jack Black has gone on a rant on Twitter. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. And, and then sort of real Jack Black has to, like, deal with it. That's amazing. So. There, there's, a, there's a good movie in there somewhere. Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's episode is the uh, brilliantly named Eskel Steenberg. Speaking to Eskel was an absolute delight. Um, it's easy when you, you, you're making things like doing podcasts and stuff to get caught up in the, the competitive race and like, oh, how many people like this? How many listened this week? How many people rated and reviewed it on iTunes? Which I encourage everybody to do, by the way. Um, and you forget, like, well, I certainly did, why I started this show in the first place. You know, I did this show because it was something that I'd want to listen to. And being able to participate in these discussions with these just super interesting, really smart, really funny people is, is a treat in and of itself. So Askel was able to remind me of that in, in many ways um, and give me kind of a, a brief respite from my constant nagging fear that I'm not quite doing well enough. You know, if you love the thing that you're doing, then that is well enough. Speaking of love, uh, this is a game Eskel's been working on for many, many years. And uh, if, you're, if you're looking to have a really entertaining Twitter stream, uh, I would highly recommend calling your video game Love. Uh, because no matter what you're, you're writing about, it becomes somehow quite profound. Um, for instance, I'm back streaming tonight. Maybe I'll even find some time to fix some Love issues. I'm switching over to some Love development. And possibly my favourites. I'm working on Love's ancient procedural animation system. Yeah, but this this episode was was great. Uh, really enjoyed it. I think you're gonna really enjoy it. Um, 
some brief admin stuff. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpointsshow on Twitter um, or it's forward slash checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Please do rate and review the show. It means uh, a great deal to me. It's very useful for the show. It's very useful in helping new people to discover and enjoy the show as much as I hope that you are and continue to do so. I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. Um, Anyway, enough politics. There's there's enough politics in the real world. Let's talk about video games. So for the sake of a a formal introduction, Eskel, um, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Okay. Uh, yes, my name is Eskel Steenberg. I'm an independent developer. I make games and other things. Um, I'm interested in creative software of different kinds. I'm a C programmer. I made a game called Love, which is a big online action-adventure procedural experimental game. And I assume we're going to talk about that a bunch. I'm sure. I'm sure that will come up. I'm sure that will come up. Um, it is a beautiful game. It really is. A Thank you very game. much. Um, yeah, I, I started out actually doing computer graphics. So I used to be an artist, and then I got very very technical, and from there, uh, you know, became a programmer. So doing computer graphics was really. The, my foray into programming. I mean, that yeah. does very much seem to be a common thread amongst a lot of the, especially the developers that I speak to, the, this kind of marriage between artistic and sort of engineering aspect, kind of both marrying together into this finished thing, you know? Yeah, and especially, I think, I think the game that I try to make uh, is especially so because I am not just, you know, I did the code, I did the engine, I did all the technical networking and all that stuff, and then also the design and all the art and the tools. So I have my own 3D modeling software that I use for all the models, and yeah. It's a hell of an accomplishment, Eskil, it really is. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I, I'm not so sure, but but thank you. <laughs> I know it is. I mean, e- even if like nobody ever played it and it was just yeah. nothing, it's nevertheless the thing in and of itself is like, that that's an amazing achievement um well thank you so like this we will come back to that obviously but let's let's go right back to to the beginning so Eskil, if you can remember what was your your very first experience of a video game um i think my first experience was uh maybe seeing an arcade game but i don't think i played it i just saw one i think i saw like pac-man or something like that and this is and, in Sweden, right? You've always been in Sweden. Yeah. And then I think the first game that I properly played, a friend of mine had an Atari 2600. Uh, didn't interest me at all. Uh, and then I had a, I played a really terrible racing game on the Spectrum. Okay. Um, that was also, you know, not of any interest at all. Um, but then uh, a friend of mine introduced me to Zelda on the 8-bit Nintendo. 
and that's that's like the first time I was like, wow, this is cool. <laughs> that's <laughs> so really I, interesting, though. So, like, why? Because you know, the, the very early, co- <clears throat> excuse me, the very early consoles and arcades, like, regardless of how how bad some of the games clearly were, th- the fact that they existed at all was often enough of like an incentive to be like, oh my god, this is amazing. This is a game on my TV. But you were you were very particular about that. You're like, no, I don't care. It's not very good. Yeah, um, I, I don't think I'm easily impressed. Okay, <laughs> which is which is sad. Uh, it's uh, it's much more fun to be easily impressed. So no, I I I never really felt like um, I was a film guy. I I loved film. You know, when I was eight years old, I watched Star Wars and was like, film is the shit. <laughs> and then um, I got into video games a little bit through Zelda. Um, and, and, but, um, I've never been a huge player actually, and I'm, I'm still not, I don't play like a huge amount like of games. So Uh, what was it about Zelda though that kind of pulled you in? I think it was like, it was an open free world. It was a lot of discovery and, uh, well, it was zelda it's an awesome game yeah absolutely uh and i i still actually think that the first zelda has something very special about it that isn't just rose tinted glasses it um it was not it was not linear it it um had a very interesting sort of progression system that i i really liked and uh of course i sucked at it um because i was a kid but but that was also sort of what's what was exciting about it because it was this sort of long adventure of like can I can I push the envelope of getting slightly further this time? But this wasn't your console. This was somebody else's. So no, I actually never I never had a um, console. The the weird thing is I I never it took me a very long time to even own a computer um, or any kind of console and. Um, when I was 13, a friend of mine bought an Amiga, and I, I discovered Deluxe Paint. Okay. And the fact that I could animate, and that really, like, excited me. So that was, like, a choice not to have a console. It wasn't necessarily, like, necessity or, you know, just the, the family. Um, he was just like, no, I'm not that interested in them. I, th- I think it was a little bit of both, but I don't think I, like, I don't think I pestered my parents in such a hardcore way yeah they probably could have tried harder if you really I, if you, I could, if you I like wanted to that much yeah you know. i could have definitely tried harder and the funny thing is now uh, a couple of years back i well uh 10 years back i went to japan yeah and um i went to a store called super potato i've been there myself it's very good and i came home with pretty much every console in the universe uh, I don't think you can do that anymore. I think I think people have cottoned on to Super Potato. Yeah, but... people people have done that now. But like, if Actually if you hit the if sweet you, spot, if, yeah. If you if you if you come into my house, you think that I've been always been a huge collector. Okay. Uh, but but I'm not really a collector. But I, I do have like a Neo Geo. I have a PCFX. I have a a Virtua Boy. Uh, I have a DD64. Which is a disk drive for the Nintendo 64. Oh wow! I never even knew they came out officially. Yeah, they they only sold very few of them in Japan. Uh, 
Uh, what else do I have that is kind of rare? I have a Neo Geo. I yeah, the Neo Geo is crazy. That was always yeah. like, as, as a kid, that was always the impossible yeah. console because it was yeah. clearly the best, but like it was like a hundred pound a game and stuff. So how oh, on yeah. earth could you like, afford insane. that? Yeah. Um, I have a whole bunch of um, Saturn games because I, I really discovered the Saturn. <laughs> uh, the Saturn has some amazing games, actually. Um, so yeah, I do have a lot of hardware in my home. I have silicon graphics machines and and then lately, the last couple of years, um, I've become an Intel innovator. So I'm in this sort of non-disclosure program for Intel. So they send me computers. Oh, so, cool. That's exciting. <laughs> so yeah, so it's like, uh, it's really when I was a kid, I had very little hardware. And I didn't have a computer. I didn't have anything. I went to friends and things like that. And I was never like, I was never the, the kid that needed to have everything. Yeah. Uh, I, I sort of figured out ways of going to schools and, and you know community centers and stuff like that. So I've never been like a person who has to have a lot of stuff. And then just the last ten years, things have just filled up. <laughs> so now when you come home to me, you think that I'm this super materialistic person, but I'm really not. It just sort of. It's a home for lost consoles, clearly. Yeah, it's just like they, they it just started raining down a bunch of stuff. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. But you got the Amiga though, so that was the the fact that you could create something on it was your kind of turning point. Yeah, and I started I started doing two D, and then I got into three D graphics. Um, um, I worked with some friends, and and we just like really got into the early, and this was like. This was the very early 90s. Yeah, so uh, how old were you when you were doing all this? I was like 13 or okay. something like this. So uh, my parents were slightly horrified because I, I don't think I did homework for the last like six, seven years of my school. Okay. Um, because I spent all my time doing computer graphics. And this was a time when um, Jurassic Park had not come out. Uh, I think um, I think Terminator 2, actually when I started, Terminator 2 had not come out. Um, so the whole idea of using computer graphics for movies or for anything was just not a thing, right? Yeah, so, there was like, what was it, like Young Sherlock Holmes, I think was the first one. Um, they had the, the well, knights that was all stained glass. And... It depends. <laughs> That's like... Okay. The very, very first thing was actually in, uh, what's that? Um, oh, it's, um, hmm, I, I don't remember the movie. It's a movie, Something World, um, that takes place in this fake um, uh, Western world. Oh, Westworld. Westworld. Yeah, that's the one. That's actually the first that has computer graphics in it. There's a display in that film oh, okay, okay. where you see a hand being animated, and Ed Catmull did that. So that's the very first computer graphics thing. But then uh, the first real sequence is in Wrath of Khan. Um, which oh, the, is, the Genesis it, planet Yeah, thing. the Genesis one. That is, um, that is the first real sequence. Um, but that's sort of, yeah. So the... There's other, actually, there, you know, there's in Star Wars, there's the displays. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, of the Death Star and stuff. Yeah, so there's like, but, you know, what's the first photorealistic? <laughs> you know, yeah. that's probably the Genesis. Um, 
sequence. Uh, but Jung Sherlock Holmes was really early, and there's a couple of other ones. Um, so, um, yeah, so back then there were no computer graphics. Like, you couldn't, like, you couldn't see an industry there. So yeah. you couldn't see that, like, oh, if, he, if he's really into this and becomes really good at it, there's going to be a market for his, his skills. Um, so, yeah, so my parents were worried about that. Um, but then everything worked out because when I was 17, uh, I dropped out of high school because I got a job working on a PlayStation 1 game uh, for EA as an artist. So and were you like, just, we'll, we'll come back to that because that's a good jumping off point. But during this period, like, was it, uh, were you drawing anyway or was it specifically the kind of the computer art that, that fascinated you? I was drawing, but I don't think I'm, I'm not a very good, uh, I'm not very good at drawing actually. I think I'm pretty good at design. Like I think I have an eye for proportions and 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 design. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not I'm not a traditionally good artist. Like I'm not good at sculpting or, or drawing or that kind of thing. So it was totally the computer side of it that yeah. really pulled you in. Uh, yes, and and I think actually um, so. Once I did get my first job, um, they wanted to make an open world game on the PlayStation One. And that was hard. <laughs> and it turned out that, that their whole idea was to model a city in, in 3D, uh, 3D Studio. This was, not, this was before 3D Studio Max came out. And really early on, we did a test where we tried to build a couple of blocks. And just like, I think we made like one block and then just copied it to become large enough so that it would actually, you know, you just see what what would the models look like? What would yeah. the files look like? And um, we did like I think we did like ten blocks, and then the whole like it did it just stopped working. Uh, so it was like just game over. The game couldn't be made really. Um, so did, did it ever come out? Was there ever a finished oh, it, thing? Oh, it, it did come out. But but the, the interesting thing then is I sort of transitioned from just being an artist to being sort of the the go between between the programmers and the the art team, and we had oh, to come okay. up with a whole new way of making levels because the idea was just well, just model it in a modeling application. But you know, the machines back then couldn't hold that big models. So what we did was actually we made um, we made a bunch of models and saved them into individual files, um, and then we had a bitmap application where we put each pixel was a 3D object. So we placed the objects using a bitmap tool, basically. Um, and it, it got kind of involved to do that, but that actually made it possible to make the game. Now, I'm not very technically minded, uh, certainly when it comes to computer programming, but I'm sure there's a lot of people that will appreciate that, that little nugget of information. What, what, was, the, what was the game? Uh, the game was called Auto Destruct, and it came out, and I think it was quite terrible, actually. Okay. <laughs> uh, but it was like for its time, it it was very technically advanced. And how did you get involved uh, with that? Um, they were looking for anyone who had any idea of how to do 3D graphics, and they found me through a community center, actually. Uh, and there like was like a real world community center, not like an yes. online forum or anything. Uh, no. 
a real live one. Um, there's this amazing community center, or were back in back in the day, uh, called the Workshop in Stockholm, and they had a big house with various workshops. So they have a metal workshop, they had a, uh, a textile workshop, they had um, a computer workshop, uh, one for ceramics and things like that. And, and kids could just drop in and do yep. stuff. And also adults. So people would come and fix their pants, you know. And, and That sounds amazing. It, it was amazing. And, um, and then the right-wingers took over and said, ah, oh, people shouldn't have this kind of stuff for free. Um, so they shut it down. Oh, <laughs> so man. It's terrible. Actually, there are some people here in Stockholm, and I'm included, who are trying to get it resurrected uh, because it was perfect it was like really like it was a maker space before there was any such thing yeah that's amazing um, and, and it think was of the also, potential of it now you know with all the new technology oh, yeah. and tools like and also it was pretty amazing because it was um it it was a mix of of ages right so most community centers for like kids have like a bunch of 15-year-olds, and that means that no one who is above 17 wants to ever set foot there, you know. But here we had, like, old grandmas teaching teenagers how to sew, which was amazing. That's, that's really good. Like, just for, on every level, that is brilliant. Like, yeah, it's, it's societal and personal and Yeah, it was, it was great. So I, that's kind of where I learned how to, how to do computer graphics, that I owe my career to that place. Um, so, so they found me there, uh, and that's how I uh, got lucky. And they basically, they had done. There was a small company in Sweden that they had made a um, a version of the EA NHL game for I think it was um, the Mega Drive. Okay. And they made a basically it's a Swedish translation of it. Uh, and that was their like test to get to do a real game, and then they got to do a PlayStation One game. And it, this was like right when the PlayStation One came out, so there were like five games. And you know, I remember playing uh, Ridge Racer about a million times, and you know, studying every pixel on of that game. <laughs> Because there was kind of like, because it was a whole new era of games. Yeah. Uh, you know, 3D graphics was like, you know, before that, there was Doom. And therefore, a lot of people thought that the PlayStation wasn't real 3D. It was some kind of 2D that looked like 3D, like Doom was. It was some kind of Doom engine. It wasn't a real, because you couldn't do real 3D. And to be honest, parts of it wasn't actually 3D, but, but it was. You know, it was real 3D. It worked, you know? Yeah. Um, it, they didn't have, like, um, perspective correct textures and things like that that really messes things up when you actually try to make 3D. But, but it was real 3D. I, I give them that. So so during this whole period before you, before you landed this, this job with PlayStation, were you playing games or were you just interested in the kind of making aspect of it? Um, I was playing games, but I think I spend way more time making games and i think that's that's always been me like i am 
much, much more interested in creating things than consuming things. But there must have been some games, like you mentioned, Zelda obviously has, has been like a, a thing that really resonated with you. I mean, to, to spend as much time making things as you have, there must have been things that you played that would have made you think, oh my God, this is this is possible. Maybe I could try this. Maybe, you know, you have to put it in to get out, so to speak. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are games that from that time that I, that I had, you know, remember fondly, like Another World and Flashback and those games. Um, there are definitely games, but I, I think, um, I think also, I think I have always been like never quite happy with games. I think, I think the games have sort of, games have not yet reached their potential. And I think also that is like, um, it's something that happens when you work on something. So if you're, if you're about to start a game, like if you, if you start fresh on a game or anything, okay. you, can, you can take ideas from anywhere, right? You can just walk around and be inspired by everything. Absolutely. But as soon as you start working on your game, you very quickly get to very specific problems that you have. Like this thing doesn't work or, or the weapon system needs to accomplish this thing. Uh, and then you very quickly are so like boxed in by your own constraints that you sort of become less interested in other people's solutions to, because even those even though those solutions might be amazing uh, for that game, they might not work in your game, right? Okay. Um, and that's what I'm like. I I usually compare it to like script writing. Like if you're if you're writing a script and you have this great idea, like a movie script, not like yeah. a programming script. Yeah. If you if you write a movie or write a book and you have a great ending, but the ending requires you know the girl. Like you're writing a rom-com, right? And in the end, the girl is mad at the boy, but the boy does this great gesture and she falls in love and happily ever after, right? Okay. So, so that's like a – and you figured out this end. You have the greatest ending ever, right? And now you need to figure out how does this how – do, what did he do that made her mad, right okay. and you need to figure out like you have all these constraints like okay he can't be too much of an asshole because then the audience are going to be like he doesn't deserve her right it's got to be some kind of misunderstanding but the misunderstanding can't be too dumb like she can't be fooled by something too much because Absolutely. then then she's dumb right so so it's like you've boxed yourself in by all these constraints that i you know how do i make this work i i know I know I need to have a scene where this thing happens and the outcome of that scene it, you know, fits with the rest of the thing I'm doing. Yeah. And, and that's what's hard about writing a script <laughs> or, a, or a book, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it, it's easy in the beginning, but when, when, then you get these sort of, how do I get these puzzle pieces to work together, right? I have two great puzzle pieces, but I need a third one in between and that one is, um, is sort of, is the problem. That's what I need to do the invent invention and so but but surely though using that same analogy then you could take you can take inspiration from from other movies and other stories oh yeah and i've definitely i've definitely done that so um but you don't necessarily do that with games as much or, or rather maybe you don't try and get constrained because certainly like love is is not a, a constrained 
idea it's a very broad open idea well yeah but it it turns out that I was totally wrong about that and that is uh if if we get to if we if we move ahead in, my, in the story of my life okay to, yeah we'll, to, we'll, we'll get to, to that we'll get to that so uh, to love but uh basically after I, I i did that after that game came out and all that stuff i did some other work i i did some art projects and things like that so you're still super young at this point <clears throat> yeah uh, i was like 19 or something like that and then um when i was 22 um i got hired by a research center in sweden to uh design a network protocol for computer graphics that i had sort of dreamt up okay and that was kind of crazy because first of all um they were hiring me as a researcher at a at a sort of academic institution uh, and I had yet to finish high school, <laughs> uh, so there must have was... been a certain amount of pleasure in that, though. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> it it definitely sort of shut up a bunch of people in my you know my granddad <laughs> <laughs> and things like that. You know, so so that was fun. Uh, and but I didn't know how to program. I read a book on C, which is actually the name of the book. It's called A Book on C. Okay. Um, so I knew everything sort of, and I worked with a lot of programmers, um, but I had actually programmed. So uh, I got to hire a friend who was a real proper programmer, and then we set out to, to write what became Verse, which is a network protocol that I spent years and years working on, um, which was really exciting. Um, so I did that for a bunch of years, and then uh, we got a bunch of EU money to continue working on it. Um, so it became a large EU project with lots of different countries involved and things like that. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Um, and I actually, I, what was that? I mean, excuse my ignorance here, uh, Eskil, but what was what was the the purpose of that? Like, what were so, you making? Verse is a real-time network protocol that allows multiple 3D applications to use the same content at the same time. So if, you, if you're modeling something and I'm modeling something, I can see your model on my screen in real time. So when you move a, a vertex, I see that vertex moving. And okay, I can cool. move another vertex. So uh, it was a big thing for, for game development because you could basically have a whole staff of people working on a big world at the same time. And you wouldn't have to load files or anything. And you could connect the game straight to the network so that all the assets and everything real-time in the game changed when it changed in the artist's tools. So that, that's a, a big shift, obviously. Yeah, it's a huge shift. And it's, it's a huge shift in, in, in lots of different ways, um, many of them sort of not obvious. Um, and um, that was a really exciting thing that I worked on uh, for a bunch of years. Uh, and during that time, I wrote a lot of tools. So I wrote my own 3D modeling tool, among other things. Um, and all that stuff was then used later on when I started working on Love. So that's why I had sort of a lot of base technology that I could use for, for future projects. Um, so, sorry before we go on i want to i want to go back a bit because like this is that's all that's amazing and super fascinating um but i'm really interested in you know you say there weren't games that you you played you didn't play that many games necessarily but like 
one of the things I like to talk to people about is is relationships maybe that they've built around games because especially when I was growing up you know it wasn't not everybody played games so you tended to kind of form tight-knit groups of friends around games so did you did you have that or were you just really focused on on your work um I I've had some I think you know later probably like as I'm just thinking about you as a as a teenager going to work on a PlayStation yeah. 1 game you know I imagine it like if I had a friend that did that when I was a teenager well, oh my god that's amazing Yeah it was amazing you know <laughs> well, yeah and especially it was cool because like I my dad uh moved out of my apartment uh because he he got remarried and moved out so I was at 16 I was living alone in my own apartment and at 17 I was getting a regular paycheck and did you go wild or was it were no, you quite well, sensible no I was pretty sensible but it, I was like you know insane or rich compared to everyone else absolutely yeah <laughs> you know cuz if you're a teenager you don't have any money you don't have like you know oh my god if your parents you know go away over the weekend you know you have the place to yourself you know and i was like i have my place to myself all the time so i i definitely grew up really quickly and <laughs> that way uh but i was never a wild teenager i i i i never drank or or you know did drugs or anything like that so but did you have your like your your gaming friends so to speak i did have gaming friends and um before i used to have computers we would sneak up to the royal institute of technology which was the um uh which is the big technical college here okay um the university and we would go into the and and play doom like forever and we weren't allowed to be there because obviously we weren't students <laughs> but we would just like sneak our way in and like you know tailgate to get in <laughs> and uh, was doom on the machines or was that like illicitly planted well, in, in well, amongst them yeah well it was first doom doom was slightly earlier but quake was was the big that took over and i for me i think quake quake and doom remains probably some of my favorite games of all time and i i just played through the the extra um, uh, machine games that did the uh, the wolfenstein new order game yeah yeah yeah. they just released a new uh, uh quake episode with like six or seven new levels i did not know about this and i i downloaded them and i played through them on nightmare <laughs> in like two or three hours and I was like ah still got the skills <laughs> and it felt like oh yeah I, I truly love those games and I um, I love them because they are so expressive um, and also because they're so direct like it's it's never th there's really no limit to how fast you can do things and that means that there's like this insane skill ceiling that just like you can go absolutely crazy with and uh, if you actually play uh love you'll see there's a lot of doom and quake in that which people don't always get no you wouldn't necessarily put them together yeah but but there's definitely like um so for instance i love having a first person shooter with with real projectiles so that uh anything that the the enemy shoots at you you can actually dodge okay okay it's all about like if you're fast enough you you take zero damage 
right? And and that is something I, I really really like about those games is you can really uh, you can really be awesome, <laughs> 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 um, which yeah. Yeah, so I think I, that was one of the things about the new Doom everyone was very excited about because for so long with all the kind of war simulators, yeah. you, you don't get projectiles. You just get, you're getting hit and then that's it. Yeah, but I I, I think I didn't, I, I bounced off. I, I liked the new Doom a bit, but I bounced off it a little bit because of the, all the takedowns. Yeah. I, I can't handle anything that breaks my movement, like any kind of like quick timey events animation thing really sort of, and I, I kind of understand why they did it because they wanted people to get in there and move close to the action. Yeah. Um, but to me, it's like that's how I play all games. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, it's like uh, I, I get frustrated in, in modern shooters where you're not allowed to be aggressive because you're supposed to sort of pop out and shoot a little bit and then hide. <laughs> and, yeah. And wait for, you know, the – Yeah. For the for the health to to tick back up, um, so yeah. Um, so are you? To me, it sounds like you are quite a competitive gamer in in life. Um, I don't know if I'm competitive. I think I'm I'm very aggressive. <laughs> I think, and I think I am very. Uh, I like. Um, I usually think that I like very. I I like casual hardcore games and not hardcore casual games. So what I mean by that is um, Quake or games like Wipeout, which I adore, is a game you can play for five minutes. But during those five minutes, it's like really, really hardcore action. You're like, yeah, it really is like, but then at, as soon as you're done, you can just stop, right? Uh, whereas something like Farmville is like, it's really not hardcore. It's super casual, but you're supposed to spend five hours a day doing it. It's this huge commitment of time where you have to like, you know, tend to a bunch of things. And, um, and I really don't like that. Like when, when games boast about like a thousand hours, I'm like, okay, I don't have a thousand hours. <laughs> give, give me, give me all you got in three minutes. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. And if you don't, if you don't hit that, that's like, I'm, I'm moving on. I'm too, too busy, too, too many things to do. So, and then of course, you know, if you added up all the time that I have spent playing Doom and Quake, it would be, well, a lot, but still. <laughs> but your 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 brain is much more active with it. It's not it's not sedentary. Yeah. It's, it's it's absolutely what a game should be. It should be a fully interactive experience. Yeah, and I think um, also love is very much thought of as a uh, there like there is no save games in love. <laughs> you play one session and you have one experience. And then you play it again, and you have a new experience. And um, I've tried to do collectibles and things like that, but I just hate it, so I, I, I just remove it. Uh, okay. So. Well, we'll get to that pretty soon, I guess. So yeah. you're doing all this uh, research then, um, and then you finish doing that, and you make your own system. So, so yeah. what happens next? Are you, are so, you thinking you want to make games? Are you still yeah, in love with yeah. games? I'm, I'm actually... Um, I'm thinking about it, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting, 
I'm getting frustrated by by academia because academia is is slow and doesn't actually do things. You want to be aggressive, clearly. Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> let's let's not make that the the, the no, theme. No, no, no. Um, I'm actually a pacifist who is very. Yeah, kind. you made a game called Love, of course. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I I actually. Um, I wanted to do something real, and it turns out that connecting all 3D applications is not something the world wants to do. Um, artists love it, but the manufacturers of tools don't like it. Okay. Uh, they, they think it's a bad idea because they want to sell. Uh, they don't want people to collaborate well. <laughs> they want them to um, spend more time in the tools, therefore buy more copies of the software uh, which is really really sad mm -hmm. uh, and at least back then there was also sort of um, Sony and Microsoft had sort of different visions of how how games were supposed to be made that had very little to do with how games should be made and much more about like controlling the market uh, and that made it very sort of contentious the whole thing um, so, yeah, I got a little bit tired of that. I also worked in, in the OpenGL Architectural Review Board for a couple of years. Okay. So I helped design OpenGL, the shading language, uh, in the early 2000s, which was really cool. Um, so um, there's a little bit of me in, in every computer. <laughs> and when I say a little bit, I mean a little bit. But, it's, but it must have been quite frustrating as well, like working on this, you, you're not being able to... You know, you spent all this time doing like 3D and, and computer graphics, essentially. So yeah. to not be able to kind of scratch that itch must have started yeah. to build up and, on you. And that that's really what led me to eventually, um, I, I got sort of, I felt done with that and I wanted to move on. And I was thinking about what, what what's next. And I, I thought of all kinds of things that I could possibly do. Uh, but then I came down on, on actually I, I love games and I've never made my game. I worked on games, but I haven't like, I want to actually make my own game. And, and that's like, that's when I started the project love. And that's, that's what, that's what the name comes from. It's like, I just want to do something I love. I, I just want to do something that I, where I get to express what I think, you know, because yeah. I was kind of thinking that games weren't going in the direction that I thought was interesting. Uh, and I, I... I mean, could you have potentially gone on to work on, get, on on other games if you wanted? Like, did you have all these kind of choices that you could potentially do? Because clearly you're very talented, so you could have... Yeah, I think so. But I've never been interested in making money, unfortunately. Okay. Oh, the, the world uh, disagrees with you, unfortunately. Yeah, the world it. disagrees with me, but I've never been interested in money and I've never been interested in sort of um, getting a, a cool job at a cool company, uh, which I probably could have gotten because I've, I've, I've lectured at a bunch of cool companies. So I've, I've given talks at Blizzard, at Media Molecule, at Pixar, you know, I've, I've given a lecture on story at Pixar. That's that's cool, you know. That's insane. But, yeah, I know. So uh, I probably could have gotten a bunch of jobs, but I kind of feel always that it's like if if you start your own company making your kinds of games, I don't want to come in and tell you how to make your games. And either you work at a shit company that does bad things 
Um, and then they're probably bad because of some reason, <laughs> you know. Okay. Uh, or you work at some great company, but like, I don't feel like coming into Valve and tell them how to make games. You know, <laughs> it's like, you guys are doing great. Yeah. <laughs> you don't. You don't need me. You know. Uh, I'm not saying they would hire me, but if if they offered, it's like, I you know, it's like I rather play the next Half Life than make it. You know. Uh, you should get to work on that, by the way. Um, so, <laughs> so you know, I don't, I don't, I've never felt like. Um, I, I think I want to do things to make an impact. And very successful companies, you kind of feel like, uh, you know, like there's like I, I love StarCraft. It's one of my favorite games of all time. And I know a bunch of people who work at at Blizzard at Team One that are actually making the game. Um, but you know, and I have ideas for things, for things I would change in the game, but I still sort of feel like it's their game, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and they should have all the credit and I shouldn't come in and, and have ideas of how to change it because it's like, it's their thing, you know? It's, I wonder if that's like a, a kind of side effect of you being so independent, so young, like you very quickly, like, right, I'll just, I can, I can see to this myself. I can look after myself. Yeah, maybe. I also think that. When I when I started working on love, one one of the realizations that I had at the time was, oh, I actually have all the pieces. Like I I know OpenGL, I designed OpenGL. I can make it a three D engine that you know can do this. I know all the design ideas that I have. I I I I have I can do the art. I have the tools for making the art. I have this network protocol that will make the pipelining of art awesome. Uh, I have all the bits, right? It's like I, I know how to, I know everything about how to make a game. Yeah. Like I, 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 I know all the disciplines. So I can actually make this happen. It's going to be a lot of work, but I can actually do it. Um, so that was a big thing of why I, I, I started working on it. And, and did you have like a specific idea in your head of like this is the game? Like had this been kind of brewing yes. in your mind for a while? Uh, yes. Um, so the idea was always, I want to make a game where stories emerge. Um, and that has been my pretty much 10 years of research how to do that. Um, so I wanted to make a game where stories are procedurally generated. Okay. And, um, to be a little bit more precise, I'm gonna be I'm gonna become really anal now because I've thought so much about this. But so I, I actually don't want story. I want what what I call drama. So the difference is that story is storytelling, right? Story is something you tell somebody. Yeah. And therefore, by definition, if I tell you a story, you shut up. It's not a interactive thing. Mm -hmm. And it always bothers me when people talk about interactive story because stories by definition are not interactive. They're something you experience from someone else. Absolutely. Um, so I want drama, which is a dramatic bunch of events. And then after you play the game and a bunch of stuff has happened, you should have a story as a player. So um, that is really what I wanted. So uh, I was naive and stupid and thought that, well, if, if you make a game with an open world where you have all these really intricate mechanics where you simulate the world, uh, stories will happen. 
And, and, and when when was this? What what sort of year was this? If you... uh, so I started in 2006, and actually in November November 30th this year, uh, Love is going to turn 10. Oh, amazing! <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, I mean, I'm 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 asking for the date purely because like in my head like i remember i remember there being a shift in games where that started to happen and it was yeah. kind of it was also because the internet first started to happen so that you got on forums and you began to discuss this but the one i remember specifically was uh grand theft auto 3 like that became yeah. as much as that was so and it has become much more beholden to this story which kind of creates this odd dissonance in the game the fact that you had just a bunch of things you could play around with meant yeah. people had stories to tell you know yeah uh and that i think um i think that was part of it but i also think that that was kind of um i wanted something else and 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 i'm i'm I might be getting ahead of myself, but back then I didn't know what I wanted quite. Okay. Uh, I think I was quite naive. Uh, and I think, I, I still think, I think a big portion of the, the gaming world is naive uh, on this. Um, I, I think we, we don't quite know stuff like this yet in sort of how, how games are developing. Um, so to, to take something in, in some kind of order, my idea was that if you build a world that is, is, is dynamic enough and has enough rules and is, simulates enough stuff, then interesting things will happen. Yeah. And reality is that, well, you know, the example I always say is like, you, you might be in a car chase in your life and you might ever get into a bar fight and you might find the love of your life, and you might jump from an airplane in your life, but no one has ever experienced all of those things within two hours. And that's why action movies don't happen in reality. Yes. <laughs> right? You, you can, all of those things have happened, but not to one person and not within, you know, that short span of time, because reality isn't inducive to that the, the the statistical chance that you will end up in those situations are nil <laughs> pretty much okay uh and that's why it's like in in grand theft auto you can go out and you know kill a hooker a cop sees you you shoot the cop some more cops sh show up you get into a car chase and they shoot you down and and that's it right it's like it's it's like a scene from an action movie, but it's not an it's action. It's not the whole movie. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. You never okay, get yeah. you sort of so you get these sort of intermezzos of things that happen, but you don't get a plot. You don't get you know, um, you get little cool moments, right? But you don't get a story really. Yeah, it's like um, here's here's something funny that happened today, as opposed to yeah. here is the story of my life. Yeah, and and so so some of the things that I, I i figured out is that the first thing is that the fact that it happens to you is really important so uh we tell each other stories all the time that are really really horrible like for instance i missed the bus today uh that is not an exciting story uh most books have more interesting stories but we still tell that because it's a it's an interesting story because it happened to me right yeah yeah uh and that's that's the power of games that's why games in my opinion, are much more powerful than movies. Uh, they make us more angry, more frustrated, more happy than any other medium. Uh, but they are also very blunt. Um, you know, we may throw the controller in a way that we wouldn't throw the remote control when we watch a movie, 
But on the other hand, a movie can tell us a very deep, intricate thing that like gives us ideas that we didn't have before. Yeah. Uh, video games gives us like the, the deep philosophical opinion we get after after video games is that blue shells are bullshit. That's kind of <laughs> you know that's that's the depth of how how. Uh, that's oh, an important lesson to learn, though. That's cool. Yeah, it is, but but still, <laughs> you know, and and I I always thought that the, the right way to make games would be to start there and say how can we work like that and then nudge in a direction of deeper things. Uh, and a lot of people try to skip that and say, well, I want to make a deep game, so I'm going to put story in it. So they put, you know, characters that talk <laughs> and cutscenes. So basically they, they make a movie inside of a video game because they don't know how to make those emotions happen in, in the, the medium, right? Absolutely. Um, so to me, that's totally cheating. That's like, um, you know... That's like if, if they made a movie, in the middle of the movie, there was like a big, you know, placard that came up and say, we didn't know how to film this, so here's a couple of pages of book. You know, <laughs> we don't under, you know, we gave up. To be honest, I'd be, I'd be quite, uh, I'd appreciate how bold that was, at least yeah, the first maybe. time. Yeah, uh, but, you know, I, I think... No, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, so, so that was kind of... Um, so I started working on Love, and I wanted it to be multiplayer. I wanted it to be cooperative, and, and that was a big thing. And um, I worked on it for a bunch of years, and it, it didn't really work. Uh, so Love is a game that is, like, truly is interesting. Um, and interesting is interesting is the thing you say about something that isn't really good yeah <laughs> and and partly that is true <laughs> love isn't very good or hasn't been very good at least um but on the other hand it, it actually is interesting it's not just interesting uh, as a way of saying that it's interesting because it has some some really cool successes um for instance uh in the game you don't have your own inventory uh, you build a settlement, and everything you want is in the in the settlement. So that means if you if you find a gun in the game, you don't find a gun that you put in your inventory. You find sort of a gun uh, gun machine that you put inside your settlement, and then anyone can walk up to that thing and get a gun. Yeah, and that means that when you have a cooperative game, everyone is super friendly because if I'm a new player and you're a you know, veteran, you really want to help me find stuff because whenever I find stuff, you will get them. <laughs> oh, so uh, it, it's shareable then? Yes. Ah, okay, so, okay. Everything is shareable. And that means that, uh, you know, I've gotten emails from people who said, you're the, you, you must be the toughest banner ever because you've banned all the trolls from your game. Everybody's super nice. And that is, I've never banned a single player. Uh, it's just sort of the the game is truly cooperative, so there is no there is no competition in yeah. the game, and it really means that people have become very good friends in the game, um, even though there you know very few people who play the game. <laughs> Actually, the people who have played the game and have played it with other people very quickly sort of bond together, um, and that is something I. I find very interesting and I, I find that it's 
it's it's something that other games aren't doing enough. Even games that are trying to do it. Uh, like, for instance, Left 4 Dead, which I think is a really good game. Um, they've done everything so that you're supposed to cooperate, right? That's like the the game is very much designed around the idea of cooperation. Absolutely. But they screw up in the end because they, they, they still put down a, a high score at the end of who killed the most infected, right? Yeah. And that means you always have that in the back of your mind is like, I want to kill that zombie. <laughs> I don't want my friend to kill the zombie. <laughs> yeah. So there's That's still true. sort of just a slight used, it's just like putting a bit of a number at the end and they, they ruined <laughs> friendships that quick, that easily. Right? <laughs> it, it just, cause you start, you make a hierarchy straight away. Yeah. You, you sit, immediately you say, I want to be the guy who killed the tank. Right. I want to be the guy who did this. And that's sort of, it's so easy to, to, to ruin a thing like that. Um, so, so that was, kind of an interesting experience. Another thing um, that I've learned throughout is that although the game is entirely procedural uh, and I essentially have infinite amount of content, that is not really interesting. Um, discovery is only interesting when it's limited. Like if you give people infinite amount of worlds, then the worlds don't mean anything. Yeah. Um, so that was one thing. And, and for instance, I realized really quickly that in this world, I want to have tribes and these tribes should be fixed. I could, you know, generate them so they're new tribes every time you play, but that's not actually what players want. Like player wants, you know, we want to see another Star Wars movie, but we still want stormtroopers in them, right? We don't want a new type of stormtrooper every time. The, the new helmets are stupid. I want my classical <laughs> stormtrooper helmets, right? I, I want to kill those guys. Like, it's it's like we all want to kill Nazis. It's, it's, it doesn't have to be a new Nazi, right? <laughs> they don't need new uniforms. It's fine. You know, we want the sort of very, you know, sure, we might want a different German castle to kill them in, but you know they should still be Nazis. You know, still, yeah. you know. Uh, so, so it's kind of um, a lot of the things that I assume that sort of oh, more content is means more game. Uh, that sort of just I I I started throwing away a bunch of ideas that I thought were important, um, and um, to sort of sum up a, a bunch of years <laughs> um, what I did it was I, I released love and then I did I wasn't really happy with it uh, and I started making more and more changes to it and I, I tried all kinds of stuff and then after about six years I got really tired of it and um, yeah because you're like this is your life essentially like, yeah, you're doing everything was, in this yeah, game yeah I was doing everything and I, I was starting to just throw random stuff at the wall because I didn't know what to do really um, and I said to myself okay I need to step back and not do this uh, and um, what I started to do around that time was I started to think much much more philosophical which which was kind of funny because I, I I I did love to make a real game and not to be uh, academic about it yeah but then I turned totally academic about it and I started to think like what conceptually is a game um, what you know 
why yeah, I mean, is this working on a deeper level? This is the, like, the that gets to the to the sort of not the heart of it or anything, but like uh, as I said earlier, like Love It is such a, a an amazing achievement, but it's so difficult to to categorize or pitch like yeah. you know, as in what is what is the game? It's like well, it's it's lots of things, you know. It's it's yeah. hard to kind of sum up. Yeah. Which is which is the great sort of tragedy I, I, of modern societies. Is really if you don't have a a quick selling point, you, you're not well, getting I, anywhere. I think actually, I think I've I've never um, thought that the problem was selling the game. No, uh, you 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 know what I mean. Uh, though. I don't I, mean selling I, yeah. it. I just mean like I, a, a I th- quick I think, way of understanding it. I think the, it. Com- the the graphics are slightly too good for the game. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the the graphics don't like the game doesn't back up the graphics. So uh, I I've always felt that the reason the game hasn't sold very much is because it's not good enough. And I've never felt that you know the market has treated me unfairly or that I am misunderstood or anything like that. I always thought that it was entirely my fault. Um, but I also think that it's like, I think that, um, I think failure is really important. Like I, I, I much rather work on a game that failed, but try to do something really interesting that actually pushed the envelope, which yeah. definitely loved it. Then working on, you know, your next average MOBA that is a knockoff of something else, right? Um, but yeah, so so I wanted to step back, and I did that mostly for my own sanity's sake. Um, and I started working on something um, that eventually became something I call the pivot model, which is something I've been giving lectures on, which basically... Uh, my feeling is that we don't understand what games are. We know a bunch of games that have worked, but we don't quite know why they work. And that is why uh, when, we, when we make games, we mostly do like, oh, I want this game with that game, right? Or we, I want this game with these features or, or things like that. We, we describe it in terms of other games. Okay, yeah. And we, we know that those games work, but we can't tell why they worked. We can't start from scratch and build a new genre of games and know that it works, right? Uh, and that's different from, say, uh, storytelling. In storytelling, we, you have things like three-act structure. And if you, if you write a, a film script, you can go to a person who knows you know, rules. Absolutely. Can, and, and they can tell you why it sucks and what you need to fix. And they will have terms for it, and they can, they can in a very structured way talk about why something is good or bad. Uh, there is an analysis like that, but in games there really isn't. Um, we we do know some things. We we know a little bit about how to mess up a game, like we know a lot about usability, right? We yeah. know how to how to do those things, but we don't actually know. We, you can make the most use, user friendly game ever. Uh, but it still sucks, right? And I always thought that, like, take a game like, you know, Dota, which is impenetrable, or Minecraft, which is also impenetrable, and they're massive successes. So, actually, accessibility doesn't really matter if you have an awesome game. Uh, it's a bonus. It's it's not a bad thing, but... First, you have to make a, a really awesome game. And then once you've made an awesome game, then you can figure out how to teach people the game. Uh, and I, I thought for a while that my game was, you know, need, 
people needed to learn how to play it and I don't believe that anymore. Uh, I don't care one bit how hard it is to learn the game. I just care about making the game awesome. And once it is awesome, then it's worth teaching people to play it. But that's okay. like a secondary problem. That's not something I'm focused on. Um, and also, another thing is just like making tutorials is horrendously boring. And it's especially horrendously boring when, when you change the game because then you have to change the tutorial. So you really don't want to make the tutorial until you've locked everything in place. Um, so so uh, what, sorry, what, what's the, the pivot model then? So the pivot model figure... So uh, here's... I deconstruct a game into that it needs at least three things to be a game. Okay. So the first thing you need for anything to be a game is what I call mechanics. And mechanics are basically uh, a cause and effect system, right? So um, you can do things and then things happen, right? Yeah. And they are entirely predictable. And if all you do is uh, have mechanics, what you get is a toy. So Lego is a great mechanic, right? You learn how to put things you know the pieces together and you can build things right absolutely so so that is that is mechanics the second thing you might want is a goal right something you try to accomplish right um, so if you take these two together you get a puzzle right um, so puzzle pieces are example right you have like here's try to build this thing with these pieces uh, Sudoku right you have these numbers you know solve this problem um, and then you have, you know, even even things in, in real world, like, for instance, uh, navigating a city. That's a puzzle, right? You yeah. have a goal and you have rules for where you can go and, you know, one-way streets and things like that. Okay. So the problem with a puzzle, why a puzzle isn't funny, uh, where isn't fun to play o over and over, is that if you solve a puzzle, you can use the same solution every time, right? That's why commuting is boring because you drive the same route every day. And yeah. that's interesting that's not a game so what you need is what i call acceptable failure which is on the way to solving your problem things happen that you don't have control over and that can be uh, an opponent it can be a die roll it can be something that is so complex that you cannot predict it so for instance physics is one of those right uh, if you throw a ball really hard in a room you can't exactly compute where it's going to where it's going to end up because it's going to bounce around a bunch. Uh, but um, it, it follows rules, but the rules are complex enough that you can't predict them. Okay, so, okay. Right. So if you have all of these things together, then you get a game. Uh, that is, these are the, the, the sort of building blocks of a game. So what you get if you put these things together is you get these sort of intermezzos that we talked about, right? Yeah. Uh, and actually, I, I usually sort of um, say also that if you have acceptable failure and mechanics, you get a sandbox. So a sandbox doesn't have any goal. Like if you go out in Grand Theft Auto, you don't have to do anything. But you can start a, a, a sort of event happening and there will be cause and effects and some randomness that will have something happen. But there's no goal, right? There's yeah. just like, I'm just messing around, right? So that's a, that's a difference. And that's kind of what Minecraft is, basically. Yeah. 
So that's it. It doesn't have. It, it's not quite thing. So so once I figured this out, then you can start understanding lots of games. You can actually say uh, you can take you know football, and you can take uh, you know sports like that, and you can s- compare them to uh, you know video games, and you can understand why they work and why they don't work. It's very satisfying, Eskel. I really I really like that. <laughs> yeah. So so that was like a big portion but then i started realizing there is a missing piece of this and that is that you get these intermezzos which are like small like storylets they're not they're events but they're not a, a plot right yeah and what we want is kind of the big epic tale of something right uh and i always use star wars as as my kind of like Star Wars was always my goal for love is like I want Star Wars to happen, right? It's like that kind of like event leading to event leading to event and like big epic story thing. And I felt that, you know, yes, GTA had figured out how to make a scene from Star Wars, but not Star Wars. So So you want Star Wars to be procedurally generated within the game space. Yes, that kind of like you go from one thing to another and and sort of there's adventure, you know. Wherever you go, something new, interesting happened that builds on the plot, and the characters have agency, can do things. But the world isn't exciting enough that you know, every if you walk into a cantina, some cool stuff is gonna go down. Okay, okay, right? It's it's not just it's not traveling. It's it's adventure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the the fourth point is what I call a, a a situational pivot. So what you need in a game is for this work is you need uh, some kind of situation that is, uh, it's partly a goal. So uh, I can give you an example of situational pivot in a game, and that is the bomb plant in Counter-Strike, right? Okay. So Counter-Strike is about one thing, and then you plant the bomb, and then Counter-Strike is about something else, right? Okay. So you have a, a bunch of sort of intermezzos to get to the point where you plant the bomb, and as soon as you get to that, a new story takes on, right? And and sort of the, the goal of the game is, is the same all through, but there's this sub-goal of the game, which is to diffuse or not have the bomb be diffused, that, that sort of changes everything, right? And, and if you can have those goals in a game, uh, you can sort of say that... Um, Right now, I don't want, like, my overarching goal is to win the game, right? But right now, I'm not working towards that goal. I'm, I'm, I'm moving towards changing this state of the world into a different situation because I think this situation will be more, you know, will be better for me. Right? Yeah. So the problem now is I, I can fairly clearly design such uh, or sort of say what uh, one of those... Uh, states should be right so so a couple of things they need to be clear like the players need to know what state they is they have to have a lot of impact on things they should preferably and this is really hard they should not there shouldn't be one state that is always better than the other one so the Uh, best thing is if 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 you can say um you know if if I have a lot of fire weapons, I don't want it to rain if rain is the state, right? But sometimes I might have a weapon that needs water, so then rain is really good, right? So depending if I have the, if I have the fire gun, then I don't want it to rain. If I have the water, 
the gun that needs that shoots ice bullets that I need water, then rain is awesome, right? Okay. So so sometimes in the game I want it to rain and sometimes I don't want it to rain. So then that means that taking control over the sprinkler uh, becomes important, right? <laughs> right? Maybe the goal of the game is still to shoot the other guy, but depending on which gun I have, I, I either want the, the sprinklers to be on or off. And depending on what the gun my opponent have, I, I also want the, the sprinkler to be on and off, right? And maybe it starts so, raining halfway through the fight. Yeah. And then so, yeah. That's great. So, so I want to turn it on and off, right? And you can start actually seeing this in, in various uh, games and sports. So, for instance, if you watch Formula One, rain is a great... You know, rain changes everything in Formula One. Some cars become slow. Some drivers become fast. Some, you know, some people choose to to change their tires. Some Absolutely. Don't. The whole thing, everything ends up. Right? And it reveals and, character as well. Yeah, it people. does. And that means that if you, if you if you have a a Formula One race where there's been rain, everything is gonna the the turning points of the story of that race is gonna be about the rain. Right. Yeah. At some point, when you tell the story, you're going to say, "But then it started to rain," and that's kind of the next act of the story of that race. And then you say, "It stopped raining." Oh, new act, right? And and that's kind of how you can tie multiple things together by having these sort of switches. And th there are some games like um, like StarCraft has some of this, right? Because you can have certain tech switches or certain things like that. Uh, but they are not ideally designed. And it turns out that um, if you look at it from a very conceptual level, it's easier to understand. But in reality, there are very few things in reality that works, that, that, that makes for good um, pivot points, right? Yeah. So I, I, one that I take as an example, because it's actually a good one, is, is cavitation. So... Cavitation is, uh, you know, when you have a propeller, yeah. when it spins really fast, you get bubbles. And that's because the water, you get so low pressure on the backside of the propeller that the water starts to boil. So the water boils from, from pressure, not from heat. Uh, and that's, that happens when you spin a propeller fast enough. So if you're in a submarine, if you spin your propeller really slowly, you don't get bubbles. And if you spin it faster than this cavitation point, you get bubbles. And at the moment you do that, it becomes really easy to hear where the submarine is. So the captain okay. has the decision to make, right? Either I'm really fast or I'm really quiet. Either I can get where I want to go or they can't find me, right? So that's a pivot point in real life that where a submarine captain has this interesting decision, basically. And, you know, I guess that gets back to interesting decision, which is, you know, the... <laughs> the, the big sort of thing about games. Yeah. Like as many uh, interesting decisions as you can. I, I started figuring this out and I, I sort of had my eureka moment where I kind of figured out that okay so this is kind of why this works and I was I was starting to apply it to all kinds of games and I was like oh that's why Counter-Strike works that's why these games work and that's why this game did not work um, so I started figuring out that it's like okay this this is it um, but then I I just felt that, okay, how do I actually apply that to my game? <laughs> you know, having a theory is one thing, but Absolutely, actually yeah. you have to build rules, right? 
So I started thinking about it, and then actually, like about a year ago, I I, I decided I was going to take a couple of weeks to try to implement something in love because I've been I've been sort of thinking about it, but I've always been like a little bit afraid to go back because I had so many like bad experiences. Yeah, I was like also I was. After I wrote Love, I went through all my source code and just cleaned everything up because I got I learned how to be a much better programmer. So I knew way more stuff. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go into my libraries and all my stuff and just do everything right. So I was slightly scared of just like looking at my old stuff because I would just be embarrassed about it and feel horrible. <laughs> um, but then I actually started working on it and um, it's, it's kind of been a success. Um, Tentatively, I'm not. I'm not done with it. Um, but one of the key things that I realized was that in the past, um, the players would build this settlement, and one of the problems with that was that the AI would attack it, which was really, really cool. Right? Really, it was a very cool thing to do. Absolutely. But it also meant that the players didn't have quite control over when the attacks came. Right? They couldn't. Um, do things. And what the players got really good at was building impenetrable fortresses. And that meant that I had to make the AI really, really smart. <laughs> and that meant that unless you built the impenetrable forces, you were kind of screwed. <laughs> so it sort of got to the point where all the pro players, sort of all the really you know, hardcore players, they knew what to do. And they just did that and then they couldn't be hit. And everyone who wasn't, didn't know what to do, they just got screwed over instantly because the AI had to be smart enough and, and evil enough, basically, to, to be able to... But surely that would develop communities, though. The new players would then just yeah. go into the impenetrable fortress. You've created a, yeah. a society there, Eskel. Yes, but, but it was also boring because it's, yeah. it's, it's not fun to sit inside of a bunker and be like, <laughs> haha, no one can get me. That's, that yeah, was, once the bunker is built, at yeah, least. It's yeah, it's just like... What's the fun in that, right? So, so that was kind of a core problem that I had. And I had all these things for, for getting the player to move around the world and, and do things. But, but this was a core problem. So what I did was that I changed it so that you could actually move any object wherever you want. You could steal anything from anybody, which was like a big change. And then I made it so that the AI... Uh, I made one of the races sort of the evil race, and they're out looking for you. And when they find you, they attack you. And you can defend yourself, but if you, uh, they will attack you so hard that eventually you probably have to move and go somewhere else. And if they don't find you, uh, what you need to power your things is power wells. And what I did was I made a power wells run out after a while, which meant that if you set down a settlement somewhere and if, if the, it's the ultimate settlement and you have all the protections you want, you're still going to want to move because there's not going to be any resources left in that area. But if you, if you get found out, you just have to move anyways. So that meant that you dynamically get sort of a pivot point for every time you move your settlements. So you move a settlement, you, you hope that it's a good place, you don't get found out, and then you'll see what happens. And if you get found out, you can either defend yourself or 
probably escape. And then sort of a new chapter of the story begins. But if you don't do that, if, if you find the perfect place, the, the, the game doesn't sort of end there. You, you say, okay, now I've had 20, 25 minutes of calm where I've been able to do a bunch of stuff, but now I'm out of energy, so I, I, it's time to move on. A new chapter needs to begin. And that sort of, that was the first thing that sort of liberated the game. Yeah, that sounds great. And made it really, uh, you could really tell a story of like, we were here, this happened, things like this. And then um, I started building, which I've I've done for a long time, but, but I started actually building a infrastructure of, there's five different tribes in the world. And they all have different personalities and different things. And the, the evil AI, whenever you are close to uh, uh, another settlement, the evil AI will attack them and try to occupy them. And that meant that you got the chance to help those, that tribe. And that means you can now be friendly with them. And as soon as you help them and if you rescue them... And all the tribes are, are AI, sorry. Yes, they're all AI. So now you can get different AI tribes that join your tribe, basically. And they will give you items that will help you. And, but they all play differently. So depending on who you help, uh, you can actually get a very different experience um, because, you know, one tribe will solve all your problems that deal with, you know, healing yourself. One will solve all the things that, you know, yeah. they're all, they all have different styles. And that sort of creates different ways of... Of, of playing and eventually once you've um, gathered up enough friends you can go and attack the main settlement uh, of the evil tribe and win the game uh, but you don't have to do that you can do it alone you can the first thing you can do is go attack the the evil base it'll be really freaking hard <laughs> but but it's totally there for you to do uh, you can go into the the, the sort of neutral AI basis and just steal all their stuff you can just take all their stuff they'll hate you and they'll actually kind of try to take it back but if you want to you don't have to be you don't have to make friends you could just make enemies instead and you could just say oh i'm gonna run in here take this great gun from these guys i don't care that they're mad at me i'm gonna go kill the evil settlement with this gun that i stole i don't i don't care if they hate me right um you can and that sort of has really opened up the game. And, and you can now play really sort of dynamically. And, and things will happen and the story will evolve. Yeah, that sounds like so drastically different to how it, how it first started. Yeah, it is quite, quite drastically different. And, but, and, and that's kind of what was so amazing when I came back uh, to Love. is I was afraid I was going to hate it, but I kind of loved it because... Um, I think it's every game designer's dream is to have, imagine being given an engine full of assets that is all prepared for you. And it's a source code base you know inside out. So you don't have to learn anything. You're not using someone else's engine. Everything is designed the way you would have designed it. Yeah. You know, everything is there for you. And it, all the, the artwork and everything is in your style. And now you just have to write your own mod for it. Basically, build the rules for the game. And, and all the things are just there. Uh, so it turned out that it's, it's been really, really fun. And you certainly sound like very passionate about it, you know? Yeah, like you've but fallen I, back yeah, in love with love. I, I kind of have. I kind of have. And uh, 
But I also think, I think I've learned so much. And one of the things I've learned is that I think that game development should be done very slowly. And I th actually think it's a really good idea to have multiple projects going on at the same time. Um, because gameplay is like, it's really easy to think an idea is really good. And then like three weeks later, you're like starting to see all the holes in your reasoning. And I think one of the the, the, when I started out doing love, obviously I had to put in a, a crap ton of work just to get graphics engines and everything up and running. But once you actually get into game design, I think that making very small changes and then not working on the game for a couple of weeks is, is a really good idea. Um, and just not trying to, to, to hurry it. Yeah. <clears throat> Let it breathe. And then... Um, yeah, only work on it when, when you feel like um, you have something you really want to test. Um, so, yeah, for the last year, I've, I've sort of done a bunch of pushes where I've said, like, I want to implement these things, I'm going to do this, and then I do that, and then if it doesn't work out, I'm not going to fix it. I'm not going to try to, you know, change it. <clears throat> I'm not going to come up with something new. I'm going to work on something else and then think about what I did. <laughs> yeah, it's and the then, classic thing of you you write a script and then you put it in a drawer and leave it yeah. for two months and then come back and yeah. look at it again. Uh, so so I think, I think I'm, I'm, I'm much slower. You know, I have that sort of November 30th date when, when it will turn 10. Absolutely. And I, I kind of want to do something then, but I also kind of don't want to have an arbitrary deadline. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Maybe I'll make some kind of stupid re retrospective or something, or make a uh, some kind of announcement, more video should. or something, that I'm actually working on something cool. <laughs> but um, but so, yeah. But what about like I mean, clearly you're you're very you know loving uh, this again. Pardon the pun, but like what about games in general? Are you are you still like passionate about games do you still love games or are you still kind of in that phrase where you're like i'm not sure it's gone where i wanted it to go or? i don't know i think i'm a little bit of both um i think there are there are things about games that are amazing uh i think the indie movement is amazing and i i love that exists um there are a bunch of things that have happened in gaming that i truly despise which is the whole gamification collect-a-thon, you know, it feels like a portion of the gaming industry has gone all into gambling. Yeah. There, and, and I just, I just hate that. Like, it's like, yeah. And, and, and not only do I hate it from a sort of moral perspective, it doesn't work on me. Like, it's like, maybe it's a, it's sort of a damage from, from being a programmer. It's like, well, <laughs> why would I want to level up? You're just changing a, a, a byte in memory. I can do that easily. I can rewrite a program that does that much faster. You know, it's like, uh, so I don't, I don't have that in me. Um, so that totally works on me, unfortunately, the whole <laughs> yeah. leveling up and stuff. Yeah. And I, and I think actually that's another thing I also thought when I, when I stopped working on love was I, I felt for a bit it's like I'm not I'm not made for this world like <laughs> because it's like like if I deliberately make games that are, are not addictive how the hell do you compete against people who like try everything they can to make it more addictive you know yeah, how, no, it's, how it's can, crazy you know how can you compete against that and it's like you you gimp yourself 
in such a massive way that it's like it feels kind of hopeless. Um, so in that way, I, I think that I'm um, I, I think I'm further away from the gaming industry in many ways. And I, I think that um, whereas I thought when I started out that love would be, you know, a big commercial game, well, commercial indie game. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at the time when I started, there wasn't really indie games. So um, uh, I, I thought of it that way. Now, today, I am, I'm quite happy if nobody plays the game. But I that's know not that true. I, that that can't be true. No, I think I I I, th- I think I've been super uh, like I've been really depressed about that nobody wanted to play my game. But I think I'm really over that now. <laughs> I think I'm like, yeah. I think I'm I'm I've gotten really zen about that stuff. And I I think that's also for for other projects that I do. I I think um, I think I'm much less interested in success you know i'd still like it absolutely of course but but i still think that i i think i've gotten to the point where i know that i'm um i i'm such a i i i just won't bend i i i just won't yeah you'd rather you know fail on your own terms than succeed on someone else's yeah well it's not just that it's like i i want to do what i want to do i want love to be the game i want it to be and i'm not gonna change anything for for what anyone else says and i know that's a that's a problem i have that's an issue right it's like i i know that's not a good thing but i also know that unfortunately that's who i am and that is going to limit whatever success i can have and and i'm i'm fine with that uh i'm 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 cool with that i i wasn't fine with that but i am now i think <laughs> okay it's really interesting um speaking to you it re- reminds me an awful lot of uh the episode i did with uh chris crawford you know yeah. you're familiar with chris crawford oh yeah I, very I've met- oh yeah and he's he's a both very similar kind of in in both your your kind of um intellectual kind of rigor and and passion about yeah. things but also in in your very steadfast in in your ideas and and opinions and one of the things that he said which made me think of it when you mentioned a second ago about because you're a programmer you know you realize it's just changing like a little piece of code it doesn't mean anything that you've leveled up um and he was his whole sort of theory that he was talking about was that there's within the next maybe i don't know 40 or 50 years there will be an explosion in um mathematical literacy basically he was like he was talking about how literal literacy you know people everyone suddenly been able to learn to read and write kind of changed the world and he believes that people being able to have a have a much better grasp of mathematics and programming and it it being kind of ubiquitous that that will then change things again i think i think that could be the in a way in a way we're already there with programming you know but, but people don't like i don't know yeah. i don't know anything about programming yeah. like i don't understand those sort of intricacies but i think absolutely within a generation or two that will be the norm yeah. i think because kids now will do like coding in class and stuff i know anything I, like I really hope they do but um i i feel like you know as a programmer i'm just i i i think it's a really important thing that everybody learns how to program uh, and i actually think i think 
it shouldn't be a class. I think you should merge it with math because math is one of those things that kids don't understand why you should use it. Yeah. Like, what's it good for? So if you merged it with programmer programming, it would actually give kids a reason to understand why math is used for something. Oh, I would have gone and nuts for that of, in school. Yeah, that, that, that to me is like how to do it. Um, but I'm also sort of, I, I, I don't want to be the guy who's like, well, since I am a programmer, everybody should be a programmer and it's the most <laughs> important enough. thing ever. So I'm a little, you know, and actually... I, and I think of, it was more purely just like... Yeah. People's understanding will, will yeah. shift, you know? And actually, you know, talking about what I am doing that isn't game related right now. It's like somebody, you know, somebody said, I think it was about movie directors, but it works for anything. It's like, it said that a movie director is the most important person in the world. And then you meet a doctor. Absolutely. <laughs> and that is, that, that goes for game designers too. You know, it's like, we're not really doing anything that matters really. You know, it's, it's fun and games and people shouldn't, you know, not do it. It's, you know, I'm not against it, but, but you got to have perspective. Um, Absolutely. And I think, you know, I'm right now working on a, a project that is called Unravel, which I kind of think this is going to be like, love has been my past 10 years and this is going to be my next 10 years. Okay. Um, and it's, it's basically about re-engineering the internet and, um, you know, today we have a bunch of arguments around the world about freedom of speech, about privacy and things like that, that are big, important arguments that we're having. Absolutely. And a bunch of years ago, I realized that, hey, wait a minute, all of those problems are solvable with software. Uh, we, can, we can give people freedom of speech and privacy through, you know, technology and encryption and stuff like that so that everybody could just de facto have freedom of speech. And then you can have whatever law you want, but you know, if you outlaw a word, but that we have encryption, so you and I can use that word as much as we want, and no one can ever find out we're using it, well, then the law doesn't matter, right? We can just, we can engineer our way around. Yeah, things, I mean, right? that's, surely that's happening anyway. Yeah, but not quite, because right now we're in a world where a bunch of really big internet company wants to own the world. Okay. They want every piece of information to go through them. And everything is right now sort of based on this client server model where, you know, they want everything, all your photos to be in the cloud <laughs> so that they can use them for all kinds of things, right? And people are actually kind of losing control. Like, I, I feel like, you know, when the internet came along, we started gaining control, but now we're sort of moving back because there's all these people who, who want it to be the other way, you know? Yeah. And also the, the, the sort of the dark forces of the world have gotten way better. <laughs> like they, the NSA know what they're doing now, which they probably didn't do in 94, you know. So, um, so you know, and I, I just realized a couple of years back that is like, hey, I actually have the know-how how to do this. And that is like, that is a profound thing. <laughs> that is, you know that is a profound change in human history, you know, and I'm not saying I'm going to succeed in it. I'm not yeah, saying you certainly that. like uh, lofty ambitions. Escalade. Yeah, I do admire that. <laughs> yeah. And I, and, but I, but I, I kind of think that, okay, let's say I have, uh, I probably have a pretty big 
chance of succeeding in building it. So maybe I have 70% chance of actually technically being able to solve the problems. But let's say I have, you know, 1% chance of anybody giving a shit, <laughs> right? Like any, you know, that's, that's, that's like very small chance that I will succeed in, in, in actually getting some kind of traction that anyone else cares about these issues enough to actually download my software. Oh, of course they do. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm very skeptical that. Would you not reach out to people on that though? Like, wh why? I mean, for a game, I can fully understand you have a certain idea in your head, and especially because you'd already built all these tools. But for something like yeah, this, surely you'd want to reach yeah, out. And I, yo, oh yeah, but but that doesn't mean that people are going to use it, right? You have to be realistic. I mean, everyone in the world is reaching out, thinking they have the greatest solution to whatever problem they're trying to solve. I mean. The world is full of people who, who, who think they have the solution for things. So just because you have a solution for something doesn't mean that it's going to gain traction or, you know, anything. But I still think that it's like if, if, if I have a 1% chance of succeeding, you know, if there's 100 of us trying, <laughs> you know, of maybe course. one of us will do it. And that will be really freaking important. And 1% of succeeding, that is like an awesome, you know... That's the, the odds of succeeding are huge compared to some poor demonstrator in some country where they don't have freedom of speech who's like most likely going to get shot. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, and I, I sit here in Sweden and risk absolutely nothing, you know. Uh, and if I have a 1% chance of delivering this, this is like, that's like, that's huge, right? It's Even a it's... great opening act of a movie as well. That's cool. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I wanted to go back to the, uh, just quickly touch on this, the, the consoles. Why did you buy all the old consoles in Akihabara? Uh, because they were really, really cheap. And uh, <laughs> because... Oh, I was hoping for a better story out of that then. Um, <laughs> well, I think it was one of those things is like, I've always read Edge. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. British. So it's like, I've always read about all the games that I haven't, that I never got to play. And then it's like you come into to the store. So if people haven't, don't know what it is, there's this store in Akihabara that is just like old game heaven and they have everything. And it's like when you come in there and you see a C Sega Saturn and it costs about five dollars just or, uh, just to make make this clear people it is not like that anymore unfortunately yeah yeah but it but it was like but it was yeah absolutely yeah i was there in 2004 i think the first time uh, so so yeah you get a saturn for five dollars and then every game you want is there and i think the most expensive game i bought was uh for the saturn was virtua cop with the light gun included for I think five dollars more or something like that. That's insane. And, and then just every other game is like fifty cents or something like that. And just like you just go through the shelves and like I'll take that one, I'll take that one, I'll take that one. Ooh, that one looks cool. Let's take that one. And just keep doing that and just go from. And then it's like okay, so now I have like everything I ever was interested in from this console. Let's go to the next console. <laughs> just do it all over again, you know. And then you sort of walk out of there and it's like. You know, oh, I spent fifty bucks today. <laughs> it's like, yeah. but I'm gonna spend more on the overweight for the flight back. <laughs> so I went yeah. to, to give some perspective. I went there about two years ago, 
and I bought three because I, I do I do magic. Um, I bought three decks of Nintendo playing cards. Okay. Um, because they were collectors, and it was for the anniversary. Nintendo released these kind of Nintendo themed decks playing cards. It cost me about ninety pounds. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. And I, it was my very first day there, so I didn't quite have the kind of the conversion nailed down. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was a mistake. Although they are still prized possessions. Yeah, yeah, I, I found so much great. Was stuff. there any the old- undiscovered gems you found in amongst all the games? Um, hmm. I think Sega Rally kind oh, of so good was so good, it, and it was. I was kind of surprised how good it was on the console. Um, yeah, and it's like so. The Saturn was a weird console because it had, uh, it had. Uh, the main CPU was designed for it, and then they had two different graphics chips. And one graphics chip was basically a sprite engine, but that was about half the performance of the PlayStations. Um, but then it had a different chip that was like a Mode 7 graphics chip. Yeah. And that could do the same thing as Mode 7, but instead of doing one layer of parallax, it could do up to 100 layers of parallax. And if you did 3D parallax, like, I think you could do like seven or something like that. And when, when they figured out that the PlayStation was going to get made, they got panicked at, at Sega. So they put another CPU in it. So they actually just took the CPU they were going to use and they said, ah, let's put two of them in, <laughs> which made them incredibly hard to, to develop for. But then... That meant that the first games that came out, they just used the sprite engine. And then all the games were just crap because it was half the performance of the PlayStation. So they were just bad. But then once they figured out how to use both CPUs and how to use both of the, the, the graphics chips, uh, they did some really nice games. So for instance, Virtual Fighter 2 was 60 frames per second running at 720 resolution. So it was like double the resolution of any PlayStation game and double the speed. So it actually like was way better <laughs> than the PlayStation. Uh, but by then they were pretty much dead in the market. Um, so yeah, the late era Saturn games are are really good. So there's something very poetic about that. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Um, th- th- this is a question that I should have asked this earlier, but I think this would be really interesting to ask you which i try and ask everybody because you know you're talking about trying to create um emergent stories in games and, and games have done a much better job of kind of eliciting much more emotion from people especially over the last 10 years but the one that i think is the the hardest to do that games very very rarely do is is comedy so can you think of a game that has really made you laugh oh yeah definitely uh I'm I'm kind of amazed there aren't more comedy games. Uh, there's really not, though. I mean, everyone I ask this to, there's always the same, pretty much three games people mention. Okay. Uh, I guess Gang Beasts is, is one of them. That was a new one. That is that literally just uh, on the show that came out yesterday. So uh, my friend Dan mentioned Gang yeah, Beasts. That's the first I, I definitely... time that's come up. No, actually, I think that, like... So, so obviously, you have the, the sort of the comedy games of, of like, the... Uh, point-and-click adventures absolutely right? uh, but but I don't I don't think again I don't count them as games right that's like 
to me, it's like I, I, maybe I'm being mean, but to me, like <laughs> Portal, Portal isn't a great game. It's a good puzzler with a really great radio play on top of it. Kind of, you know, it's it's not the story isn't the gameplay. The gameplay is one thing, and the story is a different thing, right? It's kind of it's not quite, you know, they're married, but it's not, you know, the comedy doesn't come from the gameplay. The comedy comes from really good writing. Yeah. Right? And so I don't quite count that. And I think, I think that is not the way to make funny games. Those are the only examples people ever bring up just to make it clear. Okay. So, uh, I loved a game, which was a Sweden game, uh, Swedish game called student life on the Mac back in like early 90s, black and white Mac, which was about how you were sitting at home doing your homework and then you press the key and you ran out from your house and around Uppsala, which is a student town in Sweden, and there was little bottles of beer everywhere and you picked those up and drank them and you were trying to get... uh, your alcohol level as high as possible. <laughs> and the more you would do that, the more you would fall over. <laughs> and it would get harder and harder to navigate the city. And then every now and then, your mom would be standing in the kitchen uh, making meatballs, and she would turn around and go check on you. And quickly, you had to get back to your room. Uh, <laughs> and if she found you, she would say, good boy, and, and go back to the kitchen. But if she wouldn't, she would get really mad and, and, and hunt you down uh, in, on town. And that would end the game. But, you know, the, the further you got in the game, the drunker you were, the harder it would be to, to get back to your, your room whenever you needed to. And it was hysterical. It was hysterical. <laughs> um, that, that was awesome. Thank you so much, Eskel. Are you, are you happy with that? You, we covered everything? I think we've covered everything amazing um i didn't think we would keep going this long yeah no i didn't realize how uh, how long it's gone either but that's that's a good sign because it doesn't feel like that at all well thank you very much thank Uh, you very much i will and actually uh, i kind of want to thank you for for doing the show at all because you've um done some very interesting shows with some good friends of mine oh thanks so much yeah i really appreciate it's like it's it's especially interesting to like when you know someone really well and they sort of tell your life, their life story because you don't ever you never do a- that. No, you never ask your friends for their life story. So it's it's really it's really great what you're doing. There was a, there was a brilliant story actually. I don't mean to keep this going on, but it's it's, it's it, well, I thought it was good. Um, it was I think it was on an old episode of uh, This American Life, and it was two people who became friends like in their thirties. So you know, most people you tend to kind of carry your friends through, yeah. from school and stuff, but these people met and they just they, they both got on really well and just i think both of them were, were kind of new to a city and they're like look we should just be friends uh, and like made a conscious point of saying let's be friends and because they didn't have this shared history each of them made uh, got like a dictaphone and started recording like stories from their youth and they would swap tapes ah. back and forth so they they basically both because they couldn't, because you know they they were like in their thirties, they had jobs and families, <laughs> so they'd only get to see each other once or twice a week. So they they gave, made each other tapes of their life, so they could. Oh, kind that's of, excellent! It's beautiful, isn't it? And yeah. They, so they'd have all these kind of like they'd eventually have shared their whole life together, essentially. So it was a lovely story. Yeah, unless of course someone records something that really puts the other person <laughs> yeah. off, you know. 
That's That'd a, be awkward. <laughs> again, that's another killer movie idea. Um, okay, I'll let you go though. Thanks so much, Eskel. Yeah, thank Enjoy you. Enjoy the rest much. of your evening. I'll see you later. Good night. Bye bye. That was amazing, right? Um, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you continue enjoying the show. Um, I don't usually do stuff at the end. Well, I used to, and then I changed my mind, but I decided I'd come back this week and say uh, you should rate and review the show on iTunes. Congratulations for listening this far, though. Okay, see you next week. Bye.